All right, let's pray. Let's begin with prayer, and then we'll jump into the study. Father, help us now in our moment of weakness. Uh, Lord, we need your clarity, and we ask that you would enable your servant to uh, help instruct your people. Lord, we want to be better students of your word once again. And we desire to not just understand your word for ourselves, but to be able to understand it in a way that we could explain it better to others uh, who need to understand it, Lord. And so this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at the contextual principle, which applies to any genre of scripture. And the, the contextual principle has to do with reading the scriptures in context. So I think you're aware of how important context is for proper interpretation, but let me just tell you a story here. There was a man who had uh, a habit in his devotional reading of the Bible of simply opening the Bible and laying his finger down on anything in the text and whatever he pointed to, that was God's word to him for the day. And so one morning, his verse for the day, as he set down his finger on the text, was, and Judas went out and hanged himself. Well, he was a little disturbed by that, and so he closed the book and, and opened it again for another oracle from the Lord. And this time his finger lit upon the words, go thou and do likewise. That was hit number two. So he thought, well, this can't be. So he thought, third time's the charm. But it wasn't, because his finger next lighted upon what thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> now, as comical as that is, it really is unfortunate that some people do treat the Bible that way. They, they think that they are justified in whatever they come to, whatever their circumstances, because God is sovereign, that... However that verse, I'll just put in quotations, spoke to them, that that is what God is telling them to do. But I want to tell you that this is not only a wrong approach to the Bible in that it, it ignores the authorial intent of the writer, but because of that, it actually is dishonoring to the author and what he intended. This is dishonoring to the Holy Spirit who gave us language and a coherent message in his word. We've been seeing the Bible is a coherent, logical message. It must be treated as such. So I, I would say this. To try to treat as the word of God to us for that day, whatever pops into our minds immediately as we come to the word of God, or whatever your eye falls upon first, that is dishonoring the context you can go to the Bible and people will go to the Bible and come up with strange ideas. And this is one of the ways they do that because they're abusing the word of God. And let me say, God's word is not responsible for your misinterpretation, right? And, and how you twist it. God is only responsible for what he intended in what he said. So sure, we could find some significant purpose, maybe at some time in your life, we could tell some stories where uh, from some passage you read, you actually took it out of context. But in some providential, sovereign, merciful sense of God, you are blessed by it. Well, hey, God is merciful. And let me just encourage you with this. God once spoke through Balaam's donkey, all right? God once spoke through Balaam. He spoke through a false prophet. But here's the thing. God hasn't guaranteed to do that ever again. 
So if you want to know how God has guaranteed to lead you and speak to you, it's through the authorial intent of his word. That is where you are safe. And so I would stay there. And anyone who presumes God is speaking to them in some mystical way, but subverts the meaning of the original text, that's not just irrational or presumptuous. Again, that's, that's dishonoring to the text. So I'm just saying, that is why we want to honor context. That's why this is so important. And I will just add this, that the unlearned and ignorant will always make their own convenient appeal to the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit is the one who sovereignly is guiding me. That's their knockdown argument. And I want you to understand the problem with that is, number one, you're opening the possibility to virtually any interpretation when you do that. Anybody could say, the Holy Spirit led me. How do we know the Holy Spirit led you? How do we understand the Holy Spirit from another spirit? And what we also need to remember is that our heart is more deceitful than we know, the Bible says. All right, so we're not going to treat the Bible like that. We're going to honor it by applying or observing the contextual principle. And part of the contextual principle is to analyze the literary context of a passage. We saw how we would do that. We want to pay attention to what comes before and after what we're reading in the literature. You've got to read the Bible like you read any other literature. Don't just strip what the author's saying out of the context in which he intended it. Greg Kukul has rightly said, never read a Bible verse. <laughs> never read a Bible verse? What do you mean? Well, he's saying never read a Bible verse read paragraphs. But people love to just parachute into a text, pull a verse out, and they think they know exactly what it means. Don't do that. You can read verses, but read them in their paragraphs, because that's, that's how God inspired his word, thought by thought. So to analyze the literary context of a passage last week, we saw we will determine the limits of our text. We want to know where the thought begins and ends. Then we want to determine the main idea within our text, then we want to explore any unclear words or phrases in the text we're examining and then consider all levels of the literary context. This week, we're going to examine how to analyze the historical context of a passage. So we said there's two basic dimensions, if you will, to context, the literary grammatical context and the historical cultural context. And there's overlap here. They are not to be divorced from each other. But we will be helped in our understanding of Scripture to the extent we take advantage of both. So three points to cover today. The first has to do with rewards from studying the historical context. And here's four rewards that particularly come with understanding the history of the text you're reading. The first is that it may explain unstated details in the text. It may explain unstated details in the text. Remember that moment where... Everybody in the room got the joke or got what was being talked about and you were just out of the loop. You kind of like, what, what's happening? What's going on? I need a little more context. Well, ironically, the biblical authors didn't expect us in the 20th century to be familiar with all of the historical cultural details that they assumed. They were, after all, real people writing most immediately to other real people who were living with their own particular historical, cultural context. We need to respect that. For instance, when Jesus is preaching to those who are following him in Luke 17, 32, he just makes this comment and then passes right on. He says, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. But he doesn't explain to us, who is Lot? Who is Lot's wife? Why should we remember her? 
what, what's, what's her story? Well, of course, if you went back to the Old Testament and you looked at the story of Lot's wife, you'd understand why he's saying that. But Jesus is assuming that his audience, who were Jews, very familiar with the story of Lot's wife, would know exactly what he was saying. They were picking up what he was putting down. So must we. But it means we must be committed then to doing some historical cultural study in the Bible if we're going to properly understand it. And now, studying the historical cultural context of the text can help you understand unstated details. This is because sometimes authors will assume that you're going to be tracking their thinking just because you're living in their time, but of course we aren't. This has to do with the four, the four gaps. Remember gaps in hermeneutics? The Bible is this ancient book. There's a time gap we got across. There's a language gap. There's a cultural gap. There's a circumstantial gap. So we're trying to acknowledge this. And this would include also unstated details would include why an author says what he says or the purpose he writes a text. I'm thinking of 1 Peter particularly because we've been going through that. And if you really want to understand, why does Peter keep stressing suffering? Well, if you understand the historical cultural setting and the people to which he's writing, you know that they're suffering. These are Christians presently suffering for their faith. And he's saying, hey, that's a, that's a great reason to suffer for Jesus. But there are reasons not to suffer. And so when we understand the historical context that Peter's in, his readers are in there in first century Asia Minor, it helps us to understand why he's saying what he's saying. Uh, we can also see the motivation behind characters in our story. Like we should ask questions, why does Jonah, the prophet, hate the Assyrians so much in the first place? Or for that matter, why, why do the Samaritans hate the Jews so much and the Jews hate the Samaritans? Well, there's historical cultural reasons for that. But they're not stated plainly in our text. And so there, there are a lot of other examples I could give you. But I want to say, if you want to get as close as you can to the original author's intent, you're going to have to endeavor to put yourself in the sandals of the original author. And that will help you understand unstated details. Another reward of understanding a historical cultural context is that it will enrich our understanding of the text. It will increase our appreciation of what it is we're reading. Because we can't truly appreciate the Bible if we don't really understand it. This is why a lot of Christians just don't appreciate the Old Testament. Because they don't understand it. They jump right into Isaiah. Read Isaiah 20. <laughs> and if you don't know who these characters are, and you don't know what these places are, and you don't know some of what's going on, you're going to think, why is this story even in the Bible? But when you begin to do a little homework do a little investigation, and we're going to show you how to do that in a moment. It, it just unlocks the text in a way that you can really appreciate it. So this spring, we completed our exposition of Mark's gospel. And I would say, man, to appreciate Mark's report, you've got to understand the historical cultural context that Jesus is living in, in first century Palestine. What's happening? Who were lepers? Who were these people? What was a leper colony? What was it like to be a leper? Man, if you understand some details about that, you will appreciate all the more the miraculous healings of lepers. And when Jesus in Mark 1 touches a leper, these are rewarding things to study. We can ask, how is it that all these people with vastly different agendas succeed in conspiring to put Jesus on the cross? And you might answer, well, you know, because Jesus is holy and they weren't. They didn't like him. He said he was God. Well, 
Yes, that's correct. But if that's the extent of your understanding of the trial of Jesus Christ and what's going on in the story, I think you're selling yourself and the gospel far short. You're missing a whole lot of incredible details because there's so much more to the plot. Who were the Pharisees? Who were the Sadducees? Who was Annas and Caiaphas? And how was it, like, who was the high priest? What's the relationship there? Who is this family, right? Uh, and then who is Pilate? Who is Herod? When you take the time and the effort to familiarize yourself with all these characters and these political parties involved in Jesus' trial, you will find that the plot to kill Jesus is far more gripping than any Dostoevsky novel. And I love Dostoevsky, but I will tell you that what's amazing about the trial of Jesus and the stories in the Bible is that they're not novels. These are histories. This is history. It's real. This is, by the way, one reason I would love to go with a, a group of our church over to Israel and examine a lot of the land and the culture there. Why? What would be the value of that? You can still be a Christian. You can still love Jesus, still grow in the Christian life and be sanctified without all that. We don't need to go on pilgrimage or anything like that, right? But what a value would it be to see the Bible in its original historical cultural context? That's a precious thing. So this can enrich our understanding of the text. But thirdly, another reward from the historical cultural context would be that it may expose common myths in circulation. There are various myths that are circulated, and some of them are found in commentaries, more often older commentaries or such. But even if you do a lot of study online, you can come into contact with some of these. But a proper historical, cultural study of what's going on in Scripture can expose some of these myths. I'll give you an example from Matthew 29. Matthew 29, the story of Jesus and his discussion with the rich young ruler and then what he says to his disciples afterwards. Jesus says, after the rich young ruler turns his back on him and goes away, sorry, he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So someone said, oh yeah, well you know, there's this thing historically where the eye of the needle, the eye of a needle refers to a small opening close to the ground in the gate of an ancient Near Eastern city. And so for your camel to get through this small opening in the gate, uh, you would have to dismount and take everything off the camel and then the, you know, you could fit the camel in only then. And here's their point. Some have made this point, this reasoning from this, shall I say, misconception, that Jesus was actually referring to a salvation which was very difficult but not altogether impossible. Well, we might read that online or in some old commentary. You might think, oh, it's very fascinating. I didn't know there was a... It's an ancient city or in Jerusalem, you know, this place called the Eye of a Needle and the Gate, and it seems to make sense. Maybe they're right, but a more thorough investigation would lead us to see there's no early evidence whatsoever of any ancient Near Eastern city having such an opening like this being referred to the Eye of a Needle. And so uh, the historical cultural research debunks this myth, we could say. What we should understand as we, if we want to apply a historical cultural understanding to what Jesus is saying is that the camel was the largest land animal in Palestine and the eye of a needle was the smallest opening that anybody could think of or knew of at the time. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, this is hyperbole. This is impossible. You're not going to get the biggest thing into the smallest thing. It won't happen. And if you even analyze or respect the literary context, you would See, it goes on to confirm this. The disciples hear Jesus saying this. They're very astonished. And they say, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. 
So yeah, it is impossible for anyone. Uh, a man who set his heart on riches, it's impossible for him to be saved. He'll never repent apart from the regenerating work of God's Spirit. So a study of the historical context may expose common myths in circulation, but fourthly, a fourth reward from the historical, cultural context of Scripture is that it may exonerate disputed texts. For instance, you could turn with me if you like, or you could listen, but Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. There's some, there's, what I'm saying is there's sometimes an apologetic value to be gained from what we can learn from the historical, cultural background of the Bible. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Many uh, historians are very interested in this verse because this is where we find about Matthew recording the slaughter of the innocents. This is what we read. Matthew says, Then when Herod saw that he was tricked, he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem in all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined for the Magi. So Matthew is here recording the slaughter of the innocents, but this event has been decried as fictitious on the part of many secularists because we don't have, at least to present, outside of Scripture, any witness of this event. Now, I would say, first of all, that the fact that we don't have it, this appeal to silence, isn't really the strongest argument to begin with. However, if we do take seriously from a historical cultural perspective this event, we find that, that a historical cultural context of Matthew 2.16 proves this event were not at all unlikely. And even why we, it's very likely we don't have any reference to it. First of all, history shows us that Herod butchered his own family members for fear of rivalry. This was a very insecure man, I'm sure, today. In, if he were to visit any psychological clinic or whatever, that he would be slapped with all these labels and such. And there's just no difficulty to understand that Herod, or why he would or how he could, butcher a few babies in light of one of these babies possibly being a claimant to his throne. That's just perfectly fitting with what we know about the man. In fact, Caesar Augustus is said to have once quipped that it were better to be Herod's swine than Herod's son. And in the Greek, if you know, he's, it's a play on words there. But he's saying no one was safe with this sort of a man. And further details may suggest how it is that Herod's slaughter of the innocents never made any major headlines. The historian Paul Meyer recounts how that in the days preceding Herod's death, he goes back to his winter palace and he invites his sister Salome in and says, I want you to arrest all the Jewish leaders in the land and imprison them in the Hippodrome, which is just below the palace here. And so she does so, and, and she says, Brother, why am I doing this? And Herod says, Well, I know that when I die, the Jews are going to rejoice. They hated him, by the way. There's long historical cultural reasons for that. But he says, I know they're going to rejoice when I die, so I want you to give them something to cry about. And so he has all these leaders executed in the Hippodrome at the moment of his death, so that there's, there's weeping in thousands of households at the time that Herod the Great dies. Now, Bethlehem itself was very small, a very small settlement at the time of Christ's birth, and so historians estimate that there was, in all likelihood, probably only 12 to 15 male infants that were slaughtered at the time. Now, that's far too much, but understand, follow me here. Given these details, even if historians like Josephus had been aware of Herod's slaughter of the innocents, they may not have cited it because 
it was only about a dozen babies slain. And as terrible as this sounds to us, given the high infant mortality rates in the ancient worlds, this wasn't the biggest concern to people. In fact, not in light of what eclipses this event. I mean, if Josephus is choosing between two stories about Herod right before his death, he'd more likely choose the one where Herod slaughters hundreds of nobles over, say, a dozen Jewish infants. I'm just saying, the historical cultural context may sometimes have an apologetic value. We go through a number of scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. So there's a lot of reward, though, to studying the historical cultural context. Our second main point for today has to do actually with how we are to research the historical cultural context. So let's talk about researching the context here. How are we to do this? Let me give you two simple steps you can take to actually do this. Step number one, consider several questions. And a lot of this is intuitive. We already do it without thinking, but we should be probably a lot more deliberate when we come to our Bibles and want to understand it. So here's these questions for you. I believe I have seven of them. First of all, genre. What's the genre of this literature? Secondly, the author. Who wrote it? That's going to have a lot to do with maybe why things are said the way they're said and the date. When was it written? That's important. Location. Where was it written? Audience. To whom was it written? You know, uh, this is going to have a lot to do with what is said and not said because the audience has a, a complete prior understanding of what the author's thinking about. The author's not going to explain it to you. So it's worth considering who the audience is. Background would be another one. What details, what historical cultural details are assumed in the text? Now, that, that, that's a major question. That's the, probably the biggest of all of these. It takes a lot of time. And then lastly, purpose. For what purpose was it written? Why is this story, why is this detail, why is this incident, an event, whatever, in the Bible in the first place? I think you're in a better place to answer that question after you've answered the first six before. Okay, so these are some questions we're armed with. And, you know, why don't we consider Genesis chapter 15, if you want to go there in your Bible, and let's just ask some of these questions of a text in Genesis chapter 15. Again, as you're turning there, all these are important. Some of these are a lot easier than others. I, I think background is where it gets complicated. For instance, if I'm reading in, in Genesis and I'm reading about Jacob being married to Leah. He doesn't know he's, who he's marrying until the day after. And you're like, what? How on earth? Well, this would, this would be a detail that you would want to circle as you're studying this story or this narrative. And then you'd say, how on earth is that the case? But if you studied it, you'd find, wow, there's obvious historical, cultural reasons that Jacob did not know he was married to Leah. <laughs> He thought he was marrying Rachel. He actually got a layup. There's reasons for that. All right, so you're in Genesis chapter 15. And there's a lot of redemptive imagery here. God, in the context, is promising Abraham a land. And Abraham, he's, he's really Abram still at this time. He asks God, how will I know that you will give me this land? And so God tells Abraham, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And so Abraham's, he gathers these animals together, 
and he cuts them in two. I think it's fair to say they were dead by that point. Okay, just, yeah. Not that that softens it that much, right? This is really a, a bloody sort of affair. But he cuts them in two and he lays each half of the animal opposite the other. And we're told he did not cut the birds. Now, by the way, when he says he did not cut the birds, don't build the doctrine off that, okay? You could see that in Leviticus 117, there's a similar instance happening here. And we could speculate about why that is. But stay on track here. All right. Abraham brings the animals to God. He cuts them in half. He separates the pieces. And now, God causes a deep sleep to fall on Abraham. And for the sake of time, skip down to verse 17 here. Here's what Abraham sees in his vision. And then we're going to ask our questions of this text, okay? So it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces on the day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Cabanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Wow, a lot of different people, okay? Those were people. Those are people groups. And I think you can already see a lot of details emerging from the, from the text that we might have a question about, we might want to explore. But to the modern reader, unfamiliar with ancient Near Eastern history or customs, this can seem a strange story indeed. So let's consider our historical analysis questions regarding the text. First of all, what's the genre? Historical history, historical narrative. I think that's important just for the fact that there's no reason to doubt Moses is here giving us a straightforward narration of an actual historical event. This isn't like Homer's Odyssey, right? Or the Iliad or something like that. This is, this is actual history, all right? And we kind of discussed a little bit of that in the literary context. All right, so the genre, who wrote this? <laughs> I already slipped, told you. Moses. Yeah, we would know that. Uh, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and that is going to have to do with the next questions. Then when did he write it? When did Moses give us this text? Well, you, you might not know the exact date, okay, roughly 1445 B.C., something like that, but what, what you would know is knowing Moses wrote it, you would know, well, he wrote that during his lifetime, so it was sometime in an ancient Near Eastern setting. This is a long time ago. And, and so this sort of a practice very likely was quite familiar to Semitic peoples that is not now familiar to us. Well, where was this written? And we see that it was, you know, would have been written to Jews sometime when Moses was in the Sinai Peninsula or whatever. And so to whom was it written? To the nation of Israel who were in a better place to understand these historical cultural details. Okay, a lot of those questions are easy. Now we come to question six, background. What historical cultural details are assumed? <laughs> now, for one thing, in verses 18 through 21, we have the mention of these geographic locations and these people groups. That, that's some background detail, because I don't think people today walk around identifying as Canaanites or Girgashites or Jebusites. So, all right, we got to cross a little gap there, maybe. But, all right, let's just be obvious. The big one that's staring us in the face has to do with the fact that God is making this covenant with Abraham. He's making a covenant. And if you're paying attention to the text, that's 
what this whole strange ceremony of being, bringing animals, cutting them in half, and separating the pieces, and, and the, the lights passing between them, this is all having to do with officiating a covenant. And you might ponder this. If you're just reading this, you could ponder this and think, man, I really don't know how to answer this. I can't crack this. So what you would do is you would go to our next step, which is going to have to do with consulting several sources, and you would find very readily that, that this is all having to do, these, this bizarre, if you will, set of details is having to do with making a covenant. It's a ceremony for making a covenant. And in fact, one of the things you might come across first in a commentary is that the very word to make a covenant, the verb there, is to cut. And that is having to do with the etymology of that verb. To cut a covenant comes from the idea that the, the ancient Near Eastern peoples, when they were making a covenant, they would take an animal, and they would kill it, and they would cut it in half. And they would separate the pieces of that dead animal, and then they would both, both the parties involved in the covenant, would pass between the pieces of the animal, and this was called a self-malvictory oath, where they, would, they were basically saying, may I be ripped in part like this animal I'm passing between if I break my covenant to you. It's a self-maledictory oath. And it was very common in the ancient Near East. It was understood. Hence why there's no commentary. There's no explanation. It wasn't needed. And that's, that's what's happening here in our text. So this text can strike us as, as odd, you know, but then we understand that this required no explanation from in Moses' time to the people he was talking to, these Semitic peoples. So I think that brings us to what's the point now? Let's, let's try to put this all together. Let's go to question number seven. We said, we're saying, what's the purpose? For what purpose was this written? Well, armed with all of the understanding we've just gained regarding the historical cultural context, we can see how this account immediately demonstrates the certainty of God's covenant with Abraham. God's people can trust God is a covenant-keeping God. Notice God cuts, God himself cuts a covenant with Abraham and officiates the covenant by himself, or I could say causing a manifestation of his own presence to pass between the pieces of the animal. That's what this light is, this fire. It's a manifestation of the presence of God, just much like the burning bush was a manifestation of the presence of God. God is showing Abraham I am passing through the pieces. I am making a covenant with you. And where's Abram? He's passively watching this, as if in a trance. What does Abraham have to do with making the covenant? How is the covenant contingent on Abraham's performance? It's not. He doesn't even pass through the pieces. It's contingent upon God. You know, what's amazing here is as glorious a truth and comforting a truth as that would have been to Israelites to know that the covenant God made with Abram was not based on Abram's performance, but on the mercies and loving kindness of God. We could say by extension to us as believers, we are part of a unilateral covenant. It is not bilateral. It is not contingent upon us. God's covenant of grace, the new covenant, is a covenant that is contingent purely upon his grace and his goodness. That's exciting. So we're seeing here all this just to say the Bible's not a code book. It would not be right to say that's what's going on here, that this is all encoded. It does contain many puzzling details, but these are details which can be understood simply in light of understanding the historical cultural context. So consider these several basic questions when you're coming to a text and you're not sure what's happening here. 
Circle these things. Ask these questions. And then after you've asked these questions of your text, step number two, consult several resources. Consider several questions. We've looked at those. Consult several resources. And here's some, well, I'll give you some here in a moment, but I want to say this, because this doesn't go without saying it's very important that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Absolutely. So before you run all around everywhere, understand there may be something very, very simple right at hand. It could be in your immediate context. It could, of course, be in another book. It could be in another testament. But uh, the Bible is the best commentary of itself. I think it's fair to say the Bible is a self-interpreting book. That's the way God intended it to be in all essential matters of faith and doctrine, at least. So if you're studying the Bible, consult the Bible itself, and if you were to study, uh, say, a particular topic like idolatry, and you're trying to understand the historical, cultural details pertaining to idolatry, say, in the Old Testament or New Testament, whatever, you could even pick up a biblical theology of idolatry. That is a work where an author, a scholar, would say, I'm going to take this topic or this issue, this thing you're interested in, and I'm going to just address that issue throughout the Bible. Maybe it's just throughout the Old Testament or just throughout the New Testament. But I could, I could give you plenty of examples, and they've been very helpful in my own study. A good study Bible, by the way, could also be a good first line of defense. Maybe sometimes you're in your devotional reading, and you don't want to be you know, having to go and, and get all these commentaries out. Well, one thing you could do is maybe save yourself some time, and just if you have a good study Bible, some of those notes will help you. I think MacArthur has a good study Bible. I don't agree with all of his notes, but I would say the vast majority of them, and I think it's, from what I've heard from people, it's pretty, they found it to be pretty exhaustive, is what I'm saying. Not exhaustive, but it covers a lot of the bases, I'm trying to say. So some of these other resources you could consult now would be things like Bible commentaries, good commentaries. There are devotional commentaries, I've said before, and there are exegetical commentaries. Some guys, you know, like a lot of pastors write a devotional commentary, but then you have like scholars who have given their life to the languages and studying the ancient culture, and they will give us a lot more reliable information, perhaps. Then there's Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias. So you can approach Bible commentaries by just, you have your text in mind, and you go to a commentary. Or if you have a topic in mind, or a word in mind, or a concept, or a name, or a place, something like that, you can go to a Bible dictionary or encyclopedia. That's basically the difference there. And then avail yourself of atlases, Bible atlases and maps. This could be helpful. I know especially when studying the Exodus route, the Jews took, the Israelites took from out of Egypt into the Promised Land. This is fascinating. I mean, when you read Exodus 14, and you're reading the first few verses there, and you see God told his people, turn back. I want you to turn back. Here's why I want you to camp. And then Pharaoh hears about it, and he says... These guys are crazy. They don't even know where they're going. There's a reason for that. And if you understand Bible geography and the route they're taking, you know immediately what God's doing. He's bringing Israel to a place where they are hemmed in by the mountains. There is nowhere to go. And the only way out is through this passageway across the Red Sea. God has to make a way where there is no way. So Bible maps, atlases can be useful. There's also historical reference books and articles. I have to say... One of my favorite books that I read during my MDiv program was a book by Everett Ferguson. Oh, you have it here. Backgrounds of Early Christianity. Tremendous uh, resource on the first century world. And even in the intertestamental period and all that, goes into the 
uh, I love Roman history, but even like the sports, the social institutions, a lot of these things that people thought about that the average reader doesn't interact with. Another thing I would say would be primary sources. Primary sources like look at what Josephus said. I think there's a time to look at Tacitus. And some of that may be a little bit uh, impractical to you. Maybe it's easier to get that from a commentary. But I like to do those things, especially like when I was studying through Mark's gospel. I think it's just good to get it from the horse's mouth sometimes. And uh, archaeological resources can also be a help. So there's a number of things. But with all of this, consulting several resources, let me add two final details here. And I think they're important. However much you like a particular author or resource, let me warn you that only the Bible is, is infallible and inerrant. So that, that is your only trustworthy, as far as infallibility and inerrancy, that's your only trustworthy source. So please do diligence. However much you like a particular author or commentator, he's not going to be right 100% of the time. So do diligence to compare sources. And another thing that I would caution you here to do is consult your pastors. And the reason for this is not because they are infallible, far from it, but because it may be that they have already spent a long time researching the very question that's on your mind. So save yourself some pain, save yourself some time. And it may be that they can at least direct you to some resources that uh, can help you and be helpful for you without you having to sift through a bunch of garbage. You know what I mean? Or maybe you spend all this money on a commentary and then your pastor's like, oh yeah, that guy's a flaming liberal and denies this and that. And you're like, oh, that's why he's so confusing. All right, so that being said, that is how to research the historical cultural context of a passage. I'm basically out of time, but I'll just do this in a couple minutes. Is, uh, lastly is the role of historical background information. The role of historical background info. What role does background information play? We're referring here to information that's historical, cultural, and it lies outside the scope of our literary context. That means it lies without the scope of the text of Scripture. So what role does that kind of background information, extra-biblical information, play in the text? And I think, for sake of time, I really can't get into it. Maybe what I'll just do here is leave you with a couple principles Here's the basic point. Maybe I can rehash some of this when we get out. Basically, this kind of material can be helpful, though it is not necessarily needful. It's not absolutely needful. Helpful, but not needful. This is a good principle to consider when we're dealing with historical background info. And I think that leads us then to two streams to avoid. First, one extreme to avoid is this idea that you have to have a seminary education to properly understand God's word. Okay, beware of that. Beware of that kind of thinking. Because this is how many uh, cults and many, uh, some in the church, Roman Catholic Church in particular, have held the laymen in, uh, under their thumb. It's subject to their inaccurate interpretations of scripture. All right, This kind of thinking denies the essential clarity of scripture as well as the priesthood of all believers. So we reject this. You can know everything you must know for life and godliness yourself from the word of God without any kind of commentary outside the text, okay? So be encouraged about that. But at the same time, I want to temper that with this, avoiding this opposite extreme, and that is this idea that, well, you know, I don't have time to study the historical cultural context. I don't have time to study all these historical cultural details of the Bible. Oh, yeah, you don't have time. But if we're to follow your life, you've got a lot of time to study fantasy football. 
a lot of time to study celebrities or other things and going on in life. We know a lot about all these things. What do we know about the Word of God? This kind of attitude. I don't have time for all those details, Pastor. I'm not a pastor. Well, I think that sort of a detail or that sort of a thinking can be denying the essential worth of Scripture as well as Scripture's commands to diligently study God's Word. Let's go deeper in the Word of God. I mean, isn't that the whole purpose for this course in the first place? So, hopefully, by God's grace, we can pick up with some of these things where we left off next week. You're always welcome to ask me questions throughout the week. Let's pray.